I spent a brief amount of time visiting the gym quite a lot. And the interesting thing I found on the treadmill was the best way of getting faster on the treadmill was to go faster, right? It's, there was no secret. It's just, if you want to run faster, run faster. Really? And I think it's the same in business. You know, if you want to move faster, move faster. Exactly. Trials, tribulations, mistakes, barriers, successes, and failures. Hear it here firsthand from those that have grown billion-dollar businesses to those that are just starting out. Winner of the Campaign Publishing Award for Best Business Podcast in the UK, Successes in the Mind is the only place where you can get a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. Everyone claims to be an entrepreneur, but can everyone live up to the title? What does it take to start a business, to get your product into a high street store, or grow a well-managed team? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself. Join me as I interview business leaders and founders from across the globe, delving into what makes them tick, their differentiators and intrinsic motivators. This is Success is in the Mind. In today's episode, we founder and CEO of 21st century energy provider Octopus Energy. Arguably one of the most talked about sectors this year, we were astonished when Greg's team reached out to us asking for him to come on this very podcast. Obviously, we gladly said yes. Octopus, incidentally my energy provider, was founded in 2015 by serial entrepreneur Greg Jackson. Greg, who in a former life worked a milk round earning some £15 a week, recently announced Octopus's new market valuation of £4.6 billion. This makes it the highest valued brand we've ever had on this podcast. Not bad for a kid with a milk round. With innovation and sustainability at the forefront of everything Octopus do, and with a valuation like that, it's only natural that we've got some questions. How does a brand manager from Procter & Gamble get into the world of entrepreneurialism? How do you grow a multi-billion dollar business with no HR department? How did Greg bring Octopus to market and what does the future of energy look like? Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneur, energy tycoon and founder of Octopus Energy, Greg Jackson. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me. No, thank you. Greg, looking back at your career, which really is only just getting started, if we dial back the clock to when you were at university, you studied at the University of Cambridge, you graduated there in 1994, you worked for Procter & Gamble, you worked there for four years before starting your first business. Why jump ship after four years? I'd say what, I, first of all, I really appreciate the time I had at P&G. Uh, I think it's uh, an incredible organisation and, and uh, really recruited a very sort of special group of people. It, it focused as much on people for their uh, values and their leadership as it did their academics. Uh, and so it was a really interesting place to start a career. And I now look back at this and think I was probably quite entitled in my opinion. I don't recommend people think like this, but I really only ever intended to be there a couple of years because I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I thought that was a great place to learn business. Now, that's the wrong reason to join a company. And I, I don't feel great about that. <laughs> but what happened was after being there a couple of years, it kind of got addictive. Uh, and it was, it was getting hard to leave, actually, because um, the way that pay progression and career progression worked... Every time I was thinking about it, there was another goal within the company. And so eventually I just had to cut the cord. I uh, saw a great opportunity to uh, move into the entrepreneurial world. And um, I, I thought it was the last chance I was going to get before I got stuck on the corporate conveyor belt. Because <laughs> what did your parents do? Were they you know, in a career? Did they work for somebody or did they have their own businesses when they were uh, bringing you up? Well, I, I guess there were a couple of stages. Um, uh, my dad was in the army, but, but my parents split when I was, I don't know, about seven or eight years old and my mum was a single mum uh, she had three kids 
You know, I was eight, my sister was seven, my brother was one year old. She worked in a bar in the evenings. And then um, during the day, she started studying. And um, she um, also set up charities and campaigns for stuff she believed in. She was an incredible powerhouse. And um, what I really saw there was how hard she worked mm-hmm. to keep our head above water whilst doing stuff to make the world better, to change the things she cared about, mm-hmm. and to, to kind of improve our lot through her education. She then went on to become um, a teacher in an FE college and uh, she taught sociology. So whenever she got home, uh, she was talking about sociological theory. And I think for me, a lot of the stuff I learned there actually informs how I think about organizations today. And and did you spend more time with your mum or your dad then? Because obviously your dad being in the army, I'm assuming, posted all over the world. I'm from a military background in terms of family as well. So I get the upheaval that it can cause. But in terms of structure, there must be a lot of structure that you learned both from your mum and your dad in that case. Yeah, not really, actually. I think because um, my dad was uh, posted to Germany. So I was born there. Uh, we came back to the UK when I was about three, okay. uh, but um, you know, I don't really have much formative memory um, from before that kind of period of being sort of seven or eight years old. And so very much I kind of, for me, life was, you know, being the child of a single mum. Okay. And, and your mum wasn't the only one that worked hard. You were a milk boy when you were younger, 15 pounds a week. You know, that, was that your first official job? I think I was a paper boy before that, but the problem with paper rounds was... Um, were you a paper boy? <laughs> they, yeah. Uh, they didn't pay as much. And, um, you know, being from a low-income family, it was never about money. But, you know, this was a way of me being able to... I had a couple of hobbies. I, I loved electronics. I, every penny I got, I was spending on, you know, sort of little circuit boards and, and um, spending time learning about that and, and began to love computing. And so I was buying little bits for uh-huh. the computer and to learn to write software. So um, uh, the milk round was astonishing because I think, I think we were getting up at, I think we started at 6.30 and we did about an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an hour and a half of running, carrying a lot of milk, uh, which <laughs> yeah, a couple of full crates is pretty heavy. So you're running down the street, hopping over head, uh, fences and hedges, carrying all this milk. It's freezing cold. You can't wear gloves because otherwise the milk slips out of your hand. Um, yes. So it was, it, was, it was a hell of a, an experience. All of that before going to school. And it, I think it was six days a week. Um, Crikey. I, I really enjoyed it. And I guess, I, you know, just like my mum, really, it was kind of, I enjoyed this kind of, that, that sense of, of achievement when just from working hard. Yeah. And it's, you carry that through in terms of, I suppose, into your working life today. Do you still get up early? Do you still have a routine? Or are you very much somebody that just takes things as they come across the course of a day? Uh, I have a routine for, for getting up. So I, I usually get up around 6.30. Uh, I have a bath every morning. Uh, I listen to the Today program. That's how I start my morning. <laughs> and I think it's a great reset every day. Um, so I think a lot of people try and find time for a, you know, a little bit of um, reset. That's mine. Uh-huh. And um, But during the day, the key thing for me is I only have, I don't know, most days, two or three hours of, of scheduled time. Right. I really try and keep it down because that enables me to spend time on the things, working with the leaders of the business and the people throughout the business to help understand what's going on uh, to, and to drive change. And I tend to find that, you know, if you spend your day in, in, in rigorous back-to-back meetings, you're not spending the time as a leader uh, learning, researching, and really driving the business forward. And you're not adding value to people. You know, for me, I think this opportunity to really get into the, into the nuts of stuff uh, and, and, and make a change is, is kind of my leadership style. Where did you learn that leadership style? Because working for P&G, obviously you were employed, but thereafter, and we'll get into it later, you, you founded, you sold, you advised, you were chairman of multiple different businesses. 
being employed for those four years up front after uni, did that help you learn how to actually work for somebody and how your staff should work for you? So I think what PNG taught me was uh, there were a lot of management skills. So, you know, whether it be the basics of how you do a P&L or, um, uh, you know, a lot of communication skills. Um, but I think that PNG's approach to management is very much, or certainly was, uh, very much uh, a very rigorous strategy-based approach with uh, a lot of top-down thinking mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, a lot of um, formality, very bureaucratic. So I guess for me, I, I liked the skills, but not the environment in which they were deployed. And, uh, you know, one of the things you kind of spot when you're in an organization like that are all of the places that people are well-meaning people are creating processes that they think are going to be good for the business mm-hmm. and they may be good for their functional department but they foist work and process onto others that slow everything down so mm-hmm. one of the real disciplines i think in, in moving to an entrepreneurial world or an agile world really was to say how do you maintain the efficiency of a small business as you grow and, and really, how do you eliminate those processes before they're implemented? Because after all, I think PNG and, and so many other large companies are continually going through these processes of, there you go, processes yeah. of process removal. So, you know, <laughs> PNG had this thing called process out or work out, trying to eliminate non-value-adding process. Right. All that process came from somewhere. Yeah. So our job, I think, is to stop that happening in the first place. So, I mean, you guys are famed uh, February this year, 2021, actually, an article on BBC News about not having an HR department, multi-billion pound business, but no HR department. Is that, again, because that's process for process sake? How do your staff actually toe the line, manage themselves without having to report into someone in HR? Uh, most people turn up to work wanting to do a good job. Um, yeah, nine out of ten. <laughs> And most people are smarter than companies give them credit for, or at least than companies allow them to do. Job ads always say, we're looking for creative people who will take responsibility and see the bigger picture and stuff like that. <laughs> and then you turn up for work and you're given a list of processes and a list of rules. So true. And, and almost immediately, all those things that the companies are recruiting for are being knocked off you. So I think the, the question really was to say, look, companies do want, like companies do want these people with kind of leadership and creativity and who'll take responsibility. But the, the process of work tends to uh, eliminate that. Mm-hmm. So what you have to do is say, look, we're going to trust that people want to do the right job and they're capable of it. We'll provide all the support they need. But what we won't do is dictate how they're going to do it. So their job will be, you know, if, if they need help, go and ask for help. But we'll recognize, we'll trust them to know when they need that as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to kind of predetermine it all. Mm-hmm. And I think that really enables people to play to their own strengths mm-hmm. and enables them to um, do what most people want to do, which is uh, know they're doing a great job for the customer, for their colleagues and for mm-hmm. the company. So, I mean, delegating is a massive part of running a business, but I'm intrigued to go back again to whilst you're at university. You're a huge success story that came out of Cambridge University. Similarly, Innocent Smoothie came out of Cambridge University. Mama Foods, who were on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, came out from Cambridge University. What do they teach you or indeed feed you at Cambridge University to, to make people so successful? I, I think one of the first things is actually who did they recruit into Cambridge? So um, it's not just academically gifted people, but they really do, I think, seek out people who think creatively, who mm-hmm. solve problems in new ways and, and who can kind of think about uh, not only the detail, but big picture thinking. No, that's not everyone, by the way, but that, that is certainly a bunch of stuff that I found they were really deliberately recruiting for. Right. And um, I think once you're there, one of the key things about it is 
it's the opposite of a spoon-fed culture. Um, you know, there's a lecture timetable, but certainly many mm-hmm. subjects, no one checks whether you turn up and actually very often you won't. <laughs> You're given reading lists and, you know, if you read the books, you'll write good essays and get good marks. And if you don't read them, you won't. Yeah. But there's very little discipline or enforcement of that. It's kind of up to you. And I found that, you know, the first essay I wrote, I remember this, I came from a state school or state comp and uh, turned up at Cambridge and um, I'd never really done that um, rigorous reading before. So the first essay I wrote, I handed it in thinking this is brilliant. Uh, I thought they're going to be so glad they've got me here. And the tutor sat there, he had seven of us sat around. It was like he was smoking a big pipe and it was, it was like a scene off an American movie. <laughs> And he handed out the essays with his markings. And, you know, uh, when I got mine, I eagerly clutched it. Yeah. And the red pen started almost immediately going, nonsense, this isn't right. You didn't read the books. <laughs> and halfway through, he just stopped saying anything. He'd given up. It was that bad. Right. And that was a real wake-up moment for me, that yeah. just being smart and articulate was not enough. You had to do the work. And yeah. after that, I, I did. I, you know, for first year, I started a great time socially. But... You know, if we were given a reading list, I would read it. And if yeah. we were given an essay, I'd kind of do that work. And, and I think as a result, uh, you know, when I, got, I, I was doing an internship in America after the first year exams, and I got a phone call from my mum, which is very, very, very rare. And um, <laughs> she, said, she had tears in her eyes, in, in, in her voice. And I said, she said, do you know what you got in your exams? And I thought I must have failed because I could hear those tears. Yes. And she said, you came top. At the university. I was like, what? I was mind blown. At the university, wow. Yeah, and I think, like, yeah. for me, that, for example, turnaround came because, back to your question about the Cambridge culture, mm-hmm. it was, they let you not do stuff, but if you did mm-hmm. do stuff, then you could achieve. And, and then, by the way, you know, partway through second year, I became president of our college's student union. You know, that was something I really enjoyed. And, and I, there was one essay we were supposed to, I didn't hand it in, we got to the kind of tutorial. And the, the, the um, Don said, uh, Greg, I haven't got an essay from you. And I said, I'm so sorry. I've been very busy with the student union stuff. He said, mm-hmm. no, don't worry about it. And I never wrote another essay in my whole time. <laughs> and, um, and kind of Cambridge lets you – that's the extremes. And that's that kind of yeah. um, uh, extent to which you are self-determining there. And I think, um, you know – so it showed for me, though, that mm-hmm. that enabled me to do great academically, enabled me to have this great time doing the student union thing, and so on. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, perhaps that does kind of leave this view that you are self-determining and you make your choices. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. can, if you work hard, you, you, know, you do have the opportunity to do stuff that's very special. And transitioning that into Octopus Energy, where you, you currently are the business that you founded in 2015, from a management-style point of view, your teacher went through with a red pen, crossing things off, saying it was nonsense. When you're feeding back to those underneath you that you're delegating to, how do you feed back and manage them? I think one of the great things in business is that very often it is obvious to people. You know, if, if someone's let a customer down, the customer's already let them know. If they've let a colleague down, they'll see that something hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time, we don't need to give the feedback. What we actually need to do is give the support because you feel bad in those scenarios. So mm-hmm. I think the, um, the really big thing there is uh, making sure that people don't become scared of failing because they get admonished. Mm-hmm. Instead... If, if they fail, knowing they'll be supported means they'll try again in future. Of course, for some people, it, it doesn't work out. And we have very, very honest conversations. 
But most of the time, even if they're failing, you, you, there's going to be something they're good at. And one of the great things about a growing business is we can, you know, put them in the roles they are going to be good at. And there are two or three people, I think, or straight away that have had two or three roles. Mm-hmm. You know, and the first couple might have been really quite, really quite unsuccessful. And by the third, <laughs> we found the right fit and they smash it. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think part of this is there was a great entrepreneur that I worked with once and he said, see the gold. And, and what he meant was, you know, look at, you know, if you're digging through all the dirt and the rock, it is horrible mm-hmm. and, and you can throw it all away. But in there, there is gold. And when you find the gold, it is worth all of that digging through the dirt. And you've clearly seen the gold with, with Octopus, but dialing back the clock to, 20, uh, to 1998, you left P&G, but then you started up in another sector. You know, you had a SaaS business, you had a tech business. Yeah. Octopus Energy right now is an energy uh, business, an eco-energy business. But arguably, how did you see the gold in those three different sectors? And why did you jump ship from what you did know, which was tech and SaaS, and go into energy? Yeah, and I should say, when I say saw the gold there, I was thinking about the gold in people. That is, most people got some amazing skills, <laughs> yeah. right? right. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I got that, yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> the financial um, just, reward at the end of the Just for that point, actually, I would say, look, if you look at what people do in their private lives, you know, they make ends meet mm-hmm. in today's society. You know, getting mortgages, having kids, running community groups. People are highly capable. And at work, we don't treat them like that. So that's the kind of thing that we, when I talk about seeing the gold, it's recognizing they're capable of all that stuff. Um, but in terms of your question then about, you know, different sectors, mm-hmm. I think um, there's a really enough phrase, which is you've got to be in it to win it. So yep, yep. you can spend a lot of time sitting outside a sector pontificating about kind of whether or not you should enter it and what um, value there might be and what you can do. Mm-hmm. But the reality is in almost any sector, once you're in it, you will spot the things that can be improved. Now, sometimes you'll spot those from the outside. But if you agonize about it rather than get into it, you'll probably almost always find that everything, a lot of what you thought from the outside mm-hmm. um, was wrong. The only way of testing it is to be on the inside. So I think to me, very often it's about getting going. And actually, once you're going, you'll start to be able to identify where you can beat competition, where you can deliver better results for customers, where you can drive down costs or innovate new products and services. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, actually, there's a business I was chairman of until recently, Consultant Connect, which is, Mm -hmm. it provides an astonishing service for for the health service, um, where a GP's got the patient in the room. Uh, that's a, a general practice. A, a normal yeah. doctor's got a patient in the room, and they can phone up a consultant in a hospital to get real-time guidance for that patient. And in the UK, normally, if a doctor wants to send someone to the hospital, to the consultant, it might take 14 weeks. Mm-hmm. Here, they get it in real time. And it actually eliminates an awful lot of those 14-week appointments. It brings better service. It uses the time of those specialists better and it gives better patient outcomes and drives down costs. I mean, it's, it, what's not to love? <laughs> but actually, the team that started that, I think that was their fourth business in the health service, mm-hmm. in the health sector. And the first three were at best kind of marginal. Mm-hmm. But once they were in the health sector and they had that determination and the inventiveness, mm-hmm. uh, the creativity, um, they could work out eventually the biggest unsolved problem that they could fix. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great example to me of they probably spent four or five years getting there, mm-hmm. but it 
absolutely delivered outstanding results and became a very valuable business. And one of the other businesses that you're actually an NED of is, is Zopa, Zopa, however you pronounce that. But again, you, you seem to have a knack for, for getting into industries, getting into businesses almost before their time, if that makes sense. So, you know, Home Service, for instance, Home Service Alliance, which you founded in 2013, that is a smart home delivery service, amazing, well before its time. Zopa, first peer-to-peer lending um, agency, essentially, well, well before its time. Octopus, well before its time. What do you look for when advising, becoming a chairman of, or even investing in these businesses? You know what? I think um, the fundamentals are people, you know, what, what people want and technology, what can we deliver? And if you can see ways in which technology can be used to deliver what people want before others do, the opportunity you've got is often to be competing for white space. So you're winning customers who weren't previously in a market rather than you winning them from other companies. I think that's the kind of, that's what I love about innovation. I mean, the challenge can be sometimes you do it before the market's ready. And it can also be very hard to forecast what customer behavior is going to be. So I've been really candid about this. I mean, I've given really bad advice to people on this as well, where a couple of people came to me with ideas that, I said to them, I didn't think would be adopted or I could see other barriers. And, um, you know, one of them, someone came to me with an idea that was basically Tinder before Tinder was built. <laughs> and um, I'd seen loads of dating uh, sites from previous business I'd worked in. And I knew all the data that said that casual dating wasn't going to make money. Well, I was very, very badly wrong. And, um, uh, you know, another one was um, someone who came to me with an idea for CarWow. Uh, that is the sort of um, essentially providing a reverse auction for people buying cars. And I thought, um, again, I said, like, the, the car dealers will like it. Well, it's small, but as soon as it gets big, they'll strangle it because it's going to reduce their margins. And again, I was wrong. And I think um, uh, the very hard thing about disruption is you can be entirely right, but you can be too soon. Or you can actually be insufficiently ambitious and not pursue a plan that could have been a game changer. So um, I think anybody that um, uh, has got the, the passion idea should seek out and listen to people, but actually base your decisions and actions on your own view of the fundamentals. I'm fascinated by what you assume is a good business idea and how you qualify that as the right thing to go into. So you said that you've obviously missed Carwell, you missed Tinder, for instance. How did you how did you miss them? Did you put it into a spreadsheet, go, actually, the numbers don't work? Did your gut just tell you that it was the wrong thing to play with? How do you know what a good and a bad idea is? And there's a lot of pattern matching. Right. Um, and so, uh, for example, the one with Tinder was, um, I say Tinder, I mean, obviously a, a business that would have been Similar to, <laughs> yeah. prior to Tinder offering roughly the same service. Um, and uh, in a previous business, we had some clients that did uh, white label dating websites. And we had loads and loads of data that showed that uh, forgive me for the bluntness here, but heterosexual dating prior yep. to Tinder, mm-hmm. largely you had relatively low customer lifetimes because if the service worked, they would leave the service. And um, it, it, became, it was quite clear that more people were finding kind of committed relationships, and therefore not, not carrying on using the service. I think what Tinder showed was that there was a huge market opportunity for non-committed relationships, or at least for, you know, um, uh, a longer period of, of different behaviors. Yes. That data wasn't encapsulated prior to Tinder's existence. And I think it's the same for us. Like when we started this company, all the incumbents said, you know, consumers don't care about their energy company. They don't even know who their energy company is. And we thought we could change that behavior. 
So I think one of the interesting things is your pattern matching can be very helpful, but if you're intending to disrupt, somewhere the pattern won't match anymore. And it's thinking hard about where that will be. And what, you know, what is going to be the stronger force? Is it going to be the patterns you've already seen mm-hmm. or the way in which you can break those patterns? And at what point do you pull back? Do you, do you go, whoa, hold on a minute, this isn't going to work? If you've invested a certain amount of money, you've got an idea, and it just doesn't seem to be working. People often tend to keep putting good money after bad. Now, when do you pull the reins and just go, no, that's not for me, I need to get out now? Uh, you know what, it's really interesting. I think, um, I mean, there's no formula for success here. You know, we all know that Dyson wrote, I don't know, was it 800 investors or something before? Yeah. You know, launching. Yeah. Uh, look at J.K. JK Rowling. Rowling was, exactly. Harry Potter, exactly. Harry Potter was rejected hundreds of times. And I think, um, uh, and then there are tremendous numbers of examples of people who've kept on flogging what turned out to be a dead horse, whether or not it should have been a dead horse. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think the most important thing I talk about is the happiness and motivation of the people running something. You know, if, they can, if they've still got money to keep going, and they've got the energy and the enthusiasm, then, and, and they're still happy, mm-hmm. they can keep going. But I think when it turns into a brutal, miserable slog, and it feels like a death spiral, mm-hmm. it may or may not be that it would ever work. Mm-hmm. But it ain't worth the sacrifice to find that, you know, 20 years of misery later, it's still not working. And I talked about the medical business uh, earlier. And that was a good example. You know, the, the times when the guys move from one idea to another was really determined by when they run out of energy for the idea rather than anything else. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, let's remember, these are all incredibly personal things. And actually, the personal factor outweighs anything else. In terms of, you know, being too soon to a market or an industry, looking at the Home Service Alliance, you know, you were there for two years, you founded it, but you jumped ship in, in 2015. Why did you leave it so soon? Because surely that had great trajectory. I think it did. But it wasn't disruptive enough for me. I think the, uh, right. what we were doing there was largely trying to uh, bring smart home um, tech. So, you know, for example, we were the UK installer for Nest. And we we're working on lots of ways of um, enabling things like home heating to be cheaper and smarter. Um, but, uh, you know, I saw a dramatically bigger opportunity in driving the energy transition. And, um, uh, you know, the opportunity to um, build with octopus energy a company which are using technology not only to drive down the cost of energy and dramatically improve customer service but really to say there is the opportunity for renewable energy to drive energy costs lower not to increase them so when people worry about how we're going to pay for net zero i think we spot the opportunity to say actually net zero could be a way of making things cheaper and to democratize energy so that it's uh, more accessible and more transparent in high-income countries and it's available in low-income countries and I just couldn't see any bigger idea than that. And, and, and mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the, one of the um, things that I, I read somewhere was behind every great entrepreneur, there's a trail of destruction. Now, <laughs> I hope it's not always destruction, but you definitely have to be willing to walk away from stuff, uh, willing to move on and, and willing to not always kind of, you know, tie a neat bow around everything because you have to pursue, like, you know, if I hadn't done that, mm-hmm. Then we wouldn't have built this business that now operates in twelve countries, and is helping governments and com- uh, sort of others in the sector see how um, you know customers can embrace clean energy because it's 
going to be better value. I mean, you say you're operating in 12, 12 different countries. You're Europe's one of Europe's biggest energy providers. Al Gore the other week invested $600 million in the business. It's got a market cap of $4.6 billion. These are massive numbers from an idea that in 2015 was essentially just you. How did you, how did you raise the capital, raise the money in the first sort of you know, 12 months of Octopus to get it off the ground? Because you have massive competition. So I think we sold our previous tech business in 2007 or 8 with a three or four euro in and out. So I kind of free in 2010, 2011. And that was really when I started working on the idea for an energy business. And, and um, you know, the first iteration was um, we uh, found some students at London Business School and asked them to help us write a business plan. It was a great win-win. It was their kind of big project. And, and for us, mm-hmm. it was the opportunity to see whether or not there was a business here. And I think what that told us was that um, if we were going to launch a, an energy business in a regulated sector with a commodity market with big swings, then we needed at least 10 million pounds of uh, seed funding. Mm-hmm. And as an entrepreneur, 10 million pounds of seed funding is a lot. Mm-hmm. So we kind of just put that idea on the shelf and got on with other things. And it was only in 2015 that I was introduced to Simon Rogerson, the founder of Octopus Investments. Right. And we were talking about other stuff. In fact, I think he was interviewing me to be a non-exec director of, of their business. But as we uh, had the conversation, it became apparent to me that they'd invested a lot in renewable generation, uh, that they ran one of the biggest venture capital firms in London, and that Simon himself had a set of values that were highly compatible with mine. So I just floated the idea and said, look, I once thought about building an energy company. I think it's a really exciting opportunity here using technology to transform energy. Simon loved the idea. And I think it was only about five weeks from then to the point that we shook hands on a deal that would see them commit more than 10 million pounds. And indeed, ultimately, you know, provide us with up to 140 million pounds of funding. So the idea was there a long time, yeah. but it was finally the right backer that really made it happen. And there's a lot of luck involved in that. And again, you had a track record because you'd shifted previous businesses. You must have had some cash in the bank. Again, Simon was interviewing, as you say, to become a potential NED. So he clearly believed in you to a certain extent. You managed to generate more than 10 million, 140 million in backing. That was simply because of your previous track record. If you're an entrepreneur that has no track record and you're trying to innovate or launch a business without any kind of you know, history, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, I think there are probably two components. I mean, the first is, I spoke earlier about um, you've got to be in it to win it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, like, a lot of people sit there thinking, I'm going to start a business. Once I've got all the things lined up and I, and I hear them, I had a friend I used to go for a career with, still do. Uh, every few months. <laughs> and he kept saying, I'm going to do my own thing. And I think he was saying for about three years, he said, I've just got to get this bit lined up. And there was always the next thing. I remember saying to him, look, just be honest with yourself. You're not going to do it unless you just do it. Mm-hmm. Like, so either do it or stop talking about it. Anyway, the next time we went for a curry, he'd done it. And I was, I was a bit nervous. He said, great, thank you. He gave me the push I needed. Mm-hmm. And I was a bit nervous um, because, you know, if it didn't work out, that can be bad for, you know, giving up a, a very secure, high paying job. Mm-hmm. And actually, every time I've been for a career with him since, he's just happier and happier. And it's worked right. out. And he's kind of pivoted and, and, and driven a course, um, continually creating a, a stronger business. So I think for me, first thing is get started. Once you're started, you will be able to find ways to make your idea bigger, to bring customers and, and uh, others on the journey. And in doing so, create an exciting opportunity for investors. And it's hard, right? I mean, you know, and, and, I, and I don't think it's for everyone. But, you know, when we started the platform business, the SaaS business, I think we didn't pay ourselves uh, at all uh, for a long period of time. 
And then we started paying ourselves a derisory amount. We're putting all the money in there. You know, we, pay, we, we hired people and paid them before we paid ourselves. And by the way, I wasn't wealthy. Uh, you know, I, I was pulling a lot of that money by you know, borrowing and you know, living a very, very meager existence. But I'm not saying that everyone can do that. So this isn't for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second is once you're in it, you find these things. The second thing is creating a vision that is realistic uh, and compelling to investors. Because your, your track record and your ability to deliver matter. Mm-hmm. But so does their belief that you're going to create something special. And, and so I think that combo is what's important. And certainly for me, um, you talked about, for example, you know, the, being a non-exec director or an advisor or whatever. And I think that's all part of once you're in it, you start meeting people, mm-hmm. you start learning things, you share knowledge got to be generous with knowledge generous with what you've learned generous with your time and in return you'll find you start meeting people and and, and you know it's like the primordial soup sooner or later the spark <laughs> will hit and life will happen yes and, and i mean in terms of when you started you had this uh, modus operandi to make customers lives fundamentally better and that's quite a jeff bezos statement in terms of with amazon it was to fundamentally make the customer experience as good as it possibly could be what do you class as better because you're only innovating as you go but you set a baseline you set a baseline because the experience was genuinely bad back then yeah i think um and first of all i think we've all experienced bad service from energy companies and um you know, whether that be the fact you've had to wait, wait 20 minutes to get answered and then you get answered by someone who can't help you, they've got to put you through to the department or whatever. Or really transparent pricing, you know, they're ripping you off and you can't even work out what's going on with the bills and things like that. Um, so I think one of the first messages I had with the team was, let's provide a service that you would be happy for your grand to get, right? In fact, you know, uh, let's make it so we'd be proud if our grand was a customer. And I think <laughs> thinking of it like that for me, it was like, take someone that is one of my nearest and dearest yes, and um, make sure she'll be well served. And then I think we'll be doing a good job. Well, I can tell you for free, I'm A, a customer, but B, I've signed my mum up to it. And she genuinely, I think, loves Octopus more than she actually loves me. So you're clearly doing something, something well there. But in terms of going back to the, the early stages of Octopus, you know, let's say 2015 to 2016, you must have made some massive mistakes. You must have hedged on things that didn't work. You must have employed people that weren't right. What mistakes did you make in the early stages? You know, I'm sure we made loads, but I can't think of any. And it, it's not because we didn't make them. I think it's because mm-hmm. we don't dwell on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can change tomorrow, but you can't change yesterday. Mm-hmm. And even when you make a mistake, it's put you in a place where you're now, a, you know, you'll be making new decisions, changing what you do tomorrow. So mm-hmm. I must admit, I, I find it hard to remember any big mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, yeah, but what I, what I do do is have tremendous pride in a team that continually pull together when things are going right and when they're going wrong. And in terms, of, in terms of where things are going with Octopus, with the business as a whole, COP26, I appreciate it's making you incredibly busy at the moment. You're disrupting markets and innovating hugely. You're investing hundreds of millions of pounds, essentially, in this new uh, kind of digital revolution for energy. Who comes up with these ideas? Have you got a team around you that innovates now, or is it very much you, Greg, still going, this is, this is where I want to go? I, it is interesting. Right? I'm definitely a creative CEO, right? And, and I think, um, you know, certainly it is my job to be pathfinding. So I spend a lot of my time. Now, instead of being in back-to-back meetings, I spend a lot of my time kind of looking at where the sector is going and looking at where we can be real drivers of change. Um, 
But part of our decentralized business is that there are innovators and decision makers throughout the organization. And we turbocharge that. So one of my favorite things is we use Slack uh, as an internal communications platform. And uh, there's a channel on Slack where absolutely anybody on the front line who talks to customers, so people in customer operations, um, can post uh, about communications the company sends, you know, like bills and customer updates and uh, literally anything we say publicly. Mm-hmm. And give the feedback directly to the communications team uh, to let them know when something is wrong or not clear or can be improved. Because when you speak to customers, customers will so often say, "You said X. I hear. I've seen Y." And 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 that ability to take the feedback in real time from the front line and change how we communicate, rather than and, and by the way, we do the same in tech. There's a tech suggestion channel. So anyone on the front line, when they're dealing with a crack in our platform, uh, if there's something that's awkward, non-intuitive, broken, or whatever, they report it there. And in both the comms channel and the tech channel, directors will respond to their kind of um, feedback and will make changes in real time. And I think the, um, what that does is it creates, that's an example of creating this kind of really rapidly learning organization that's continually improving, not as a top-down process. You know, it's not like we send a business analyst out to do requirements gathering. That's a real-time process in our business. So I think from top to bottom, you know, this ability to innovate and drive change is absolutely built into our DNA. And you, you innovate internally as well as externally um, from a staffing point of view. I mean, now a lot of businesses are gifting shares, growth shares or otherwise. You've given 5% of your business to, to your team. What does that look like and how does that work? And, and, and why and when did you start to do that? Yeah. So you asked uh, earlier about um, sort of learning experiences in businesses. And I think mm-hmm. one thing that I've learned is that, um, and, and, and by the way, you know, Daniel Pink has written a lot about this. A lot of the ways in which companies motivate people, so, uh, you know, KPIs with pay rises and um, bonuses linked to your individual performance make sense at the micro level, but actually they have a couple of really negative impacts. The first is um, they cease to be motivating to people. There's a great study he he quotes in which uh, they found a lot of people who loved doing Sudokus and then they paid them a dollar a Sudoku. Right. Um, And to begin with, they were doing more Sudokus faster, but quite quickly their Sudoku productivity tailed off and it essentially, essentially became slower than it was before they were paid. And that's because instead of doing a process they were enjoying, they were doing it under stress to hit a target. And amazing, when you stopped paying them, the productivity didn't return. You'd actually spoiled their enjoyment of Sudokus by turning it into paid work rather than enjoyment. So I think one thing in our business is trying to avoid a culture of individual targets and bonuses because it, Ultimately, in the short term, it can work. In the medium to long term, it's counterproductive. The second thing is um, it, it really militates against teamwork. And once you've got individual KPIs and bonus and stuff like that, um, one function or one person's KPIs can be at conflict with another. And whether it be spoken or unspoken and deliberate or subconscious, you find they start pulling in different directions. And more and more of your company's effort is people fighting against each other rather than working together. So uh, a great thing about everyone having equity and that being absolutely the, like, you know, the vast majority of our company's only performance-related um, financial incentive mm-hmm. is it gets everyone pulling together. It's long-term. 
and it focuses on the thing that really matters, which is the success of the business, not the success of themselves as an individual or their function. And I think, so it's worked incredibly well for that. But the other bit, as I mentioned, look, my mum was a sociology teacher. And, you know, when you think hard about what the role of business is in society, you know, if we're going to have sustainable capitalism, Mm-hmm. We need businesses that work for consumers. Great. We talked about how important it is to serve customers. And by the way, thank you so much to you for your feedback from your mum. And uh, but we also need one that works for employees. And I don't think it's sustainable to have a world in which bosses get rich off the work of employees if employees don't also do well. And and so I think for me, both you know, there's sort of an ethical and even a sustainability question. In making sure that um, everyone does well if the business is successful. Well, what about the staff that aren't necessarily pulling their weight, for instance? They're still in that pool of equity. They've still got a return if the company delivers, but they're doing 50% of the job because they can hide behind a computer. Does that not rub the staff that are overachieving up the wrong way? Yeah. I mean, um, first of all, we should be recognise that 90% of people pull their weight if you run an organisation correctly, right? Maybe 95 Um if they feel that their work is worthwhile, um, that they are making a difference and that they're recognized. But it is a hidden secret of most bosses that, um, you know, you have people coming to you quite often saying, that person's not pulling weight, you should fire them. And it's very often the case that, you know, employees are a lot more aggressive about that than bosses. So I think, um, you know, we have this culture where, first of all, if someone's not, if things aren't working, we put our arm around someone. Um, have they got the support? Is there a, a reason that they're not performing? You know, it's not about a stick. It's about understanding what it is that would make them want to perform. If we can't solve that and they're still not performing, then we have a grown-up conversation and, and, and you know, maybe they'll move to another role. But typically, uh, you know, if that's not working out, then, then this isn't the right company for them. And, and some, by way, some people don't thrive in this environment. Can I call it freedom and responsibility? Five or ten percent of people that join Octopus are lost. You know, they do want a checklist, they do want tick boxes, they do want personal KPIs, and that's cool. It's just not the right company for them. And in terms of where the company is 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 going, because you've got a great vision in terms of you're not just essentially improving somebody's shoe or a chocolate bar, you're genuinely making a difference to the world, essentially. So we can all align ourselves to that vision. With COP twenty six around the corner, where do you think the world of energy over the next two, three, four years is going? I really hope that politicians and regulators, governments and um, civil servants around the world grasp the opportunity to uh, drive down the cost of energy. And the reason I say that is a lot of the time we're focused on these questions. Look, if we go renewable, what do we do when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining? And that's a perfectly valid question, of course. But before we try and answer that, let's say, what do we do when the sun is shining, wind is blowing? Because we've got incredible amounts abundance of zero marginal cost, zero guilt, zero carbon, green electricity. Now, if we can make the most of it when it's available, first of all, we can provide people with cheaper power than they've ever had. Secondly, it makes it cheaper to fill the gaps when it's not available. So, you know, for example, whether it be charging grid level batteries or filling the batteries in people's electric cars, making hydrogen or turn back into electricity or whatever. Um, it gets cheaper to fill those gaps if the electrons you're, you're using were so cheap in the first place. So I think the, the really big thing for me is governments have got a choice. They can either try and create a renewable energy system 
that looks like the old world of fossil fuels, you know, where you kind of got flat pricing for everything and central command and control run by governments. That'll put costs up dramatically, by the way. Or we can decentralize it, running like the internet, you know, allow the data to flow and optimize at every level. And we'll have cheaper energy than we've ever had. And in terms, and I really want to keep this out of the sort of political sphere, but if we look at the disruption that your business is doing in terms of the greater good, we look at what Insulate Britain are doing, Extinction Rebellion, where they're actually just, to a certain extent, pissing people off. I know they've got a MO in terms of trying to make sure the world is more eco-friendly, but it somewhat backfires. What's your stance on that? I think all protest movements piss people off. Um, It's kind of the way they work. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and that goes whether they be, you know, ones you may call progressive or conservative, Mm -hmm. left wing, right wing. I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, but I think the choice we made is that we would invest in creating a future that I hope citizens and governments around the world will choose Mm -hmm. because we're trying to eliminate the trade-off. We're not saying that green energy will cost more. We're saying we think we can make it cost less. And make it better. And the more of it we do, the less that it will cost. And so citizens will come flocking to that because it's better value, yeah. even before we think about carbon and climate. And in terms of you're an incredibly positive guy, and you must constantly get people being negative around you to a certain extent, not least because they're pissed off with certain activists. Now, looking at how you pick yourself up, dust yourself down when you get out of bed in the morning and you think, Christ, I just can't face interrogation from the BBC or whatever. How do you keep yourself positive, Greg? Uh, I think, first of all, there's a bit of self-selection, right? If you're a positive (laughs) person, there might be a good reason to be an entrepreneur, right? It's one of the contributory factors. A hundred percent. I think then it's also enjoying the discussion and debate. I love listening to people. You know, if if people disagree with us, it's for a reason. And, um, uh, you know, really understanding what that is, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe we've got something to learn and maybe we can change our plans um, based upon what we learn from listening to people. And maybe it's because they don't understand the, the picture, in which case are we able to bring, you know, more evidence or uh, more emotional understanding, whatever it will take to, to help them understand that. Um, maybe it's because you've got a fundamentally different view of the world, in which case, hey, you know, we live in a diverse society and let's embrace the fact that we're not all the same. What exactly? So I think part of it for me is I'm not going to get down about that. But what I'm going to do is say, look, what great opportunity is to keep learning to drive change. And, and can I give you a quick example? Of course um, you can. We, we've just opened a uh, 23,000 cubic meter facility just outside London. Um, for the uh, decarbonisation of heat. So we're doing research and development and training engineers there. And part of the reason that we built it the way we did is we realised when people talk about decarbonisation of heat, they're all kind of waving their hands around and it's all kind of essay-style arguments and spreadsheets. Lots of gesticulation. And we needed to yeah. show people. So we built this place not just as a sort of a close facility, but as a visitor center. And we bring in, you know, politicians and journalists and stakeholders and help them see and feel and touch this future. Mm-hmm. And I think that was based on this kind of insight that a lot of the reasons they were disagreeing with us was no one had done a good job of showing them the alternative. That's really interesting. So we're doing that. And I, and I love that ability to change the narrative by um, making things real for people. It's more experiential, I suppose, rather than just assumptive in that sense. And in terms of and in terms of learning, because obviously you're learning from people, people are learning from you and vice versa. We have so many entrepreneurs on this podcast that say they have NEDs, but don't necessarily get the best from their NEDs or from the board or from their advisors. How do you harness the intelligence and the value from an NED? That's a great question. Right? I think it's 
one of the hardest things about being a sort of uh, a disruptive entrepreneur is you've got a worldview in your head. And um, uh, almost by definition, that is different than the worldview of the experts in your sector. Mm-hmm. So when people are saying to you, oh, I'll work with this person, they'll be a great NED. This person knows everything about your sector. Yeah. A lot of the time, they're going to be the wrong people to speak to because their worldview is grounded in everything that you want to change. Yeah. Now, sometimes there are those who've been in the sector and have seen the same pattern of change and therefore are going to support your view. Uh, they'll still challenge you because they've got knowledge and experience. But I think the most important thing is they have to share your worldview. Otherwise, you're going to be arguing about you know, whether red's the right color or blue's the right color rather than them helping you find more red. So I think the um, most important thing is that. I, th- I think the second one is it's got to be your own selection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, there are many well-meaning investors and, and others who will encourage you to take specific people on board as NEDs or as advisors. Mm-hmm. And um, you should always respectfully listen. But I think nine times out of ten, I say thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't think that um, I'm going to get a lot out of them. Uh, and I think the last bit, by the way, is entrepreneurs need to be confident. Mm-hmm. If you're changing the world, people are going to tell you you're wrong all the time. <laughs> you shouldn't be cloth-eared. As I said earlier, you should listen. And, but you should be confident in making your own decisions. And I've seen certainly seen entrepreneurs that listen too much to board members and NEDs. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the board member of the NED is, is kind of getting this very low-frequency interaction with the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they'll give you a load of advice. And if you follow it, they're not going to be around to course correct. Mm-hmm. So by the time you next see them, things may have gone badly wrong. And so what you'll see is it's like when people drive a, you know, when people drive a boat and you see them zigzagging down a river. <laughs> yes, they're not used to the, the frequency of feedback. Yeah. Right? yeah. You know, the, the, the CEO is the pilot yeah. and must absolutely be responding continually in real time with course correction and not going swinging, sort of side-veering based on uh, guidance from others. And in terms of you with, I suppose, your advisory side of things, do you have people around you that, are, that advise you from an NED level or, or from an, another level, I suppose? Very little. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say I don't value it. But um, Have you ever had people around you in that sense? No. Um, no. Well, but I, for example, I'm a voracious podcast consumer. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I say that just because I used to read voraciously, but I'm finding a lot yeah. of the same authors do great podcasts. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I'm out there listening and, and reading all the time to learn and improve. And, and I think um, I do meet people who I hugely value and respect and will listen to them, but not necessarily kind of take them on as a retained advisor, but more, more a case of just kind of uh, occasionally may phone them up and, and run an idea by them. But the vast majority of time, I'm just learning and bringing what they teach me into my worldview. Mm-hmm. So, Milk Boy, $4.6 billion business. What's your biggest piece of advice that you've learned through the last couple of years? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that when people get something wrong, put your arm around them. You have to have a culture in which people are sort of able to stick their neck out and say stuff and take risks. Um, otherwise, um, I think you have a sort of spiral to blandness and you won't change stuff. Greg, just to kind of, I suppose, bring it to the current the current day, quite literally, looking at the amount of energy companies that are disappearing, you know, on a daily basis, you've taken on hundreds of thousands of new customers, literally overnight. How did you have the capacity to just absorb that additional workload? 
Kraken, the platform that runs our business, is um, incredibly scalable. And our operating model, you know, we have teams of uh, roughly 10 people that look after about 70,000 customers each. That operating model is also very, very scalable. You know, if we want to look after more customers, we build more teams. One of the um, features of taking on a company, you know, a failed company, is we'll try and retain their staff. And we bring their staff onto our platform, into our operating model. And that way, we're almost immediately able to absorb those customers and, and hopefully give them great service. It's slightly challenging because, you know, we rely upon access to the failed company's systems. And often that is uh, difficult because a lot of the management will have left or the um, uh, administrators hold the keys. But I think the um, other thing we've got to say is just, that, you know, obviously the number of companies failing at the moment is terrible for the, for the people that work in them and unsettling for customers. Customers will always be looked after. Uh, but, um, you know, if I walk down the high street, I see just as many empty shops as I'm seeing failed energy companies. This is what happens in times of transition. Greg, for you, what does success look like then? You know, someone asked me this the other day, and I think I would love to make a material difference to the pace and cost of the energy transition worldwide. Mm -hmm. If I can make renewables faster and cheaper across the world, job done. (laughs) Job done. Um, But I think um, the other bit is I think entrepreneurialism is often a bit like um, climbing a mountain, mm-hmm. all right? Every time you get to a, a ridge, you can see the next one. Mm-hmm. And as long as you've got enough energy, I mean, it's hard to hold back. You just want to keep going to the next one. So I don't know where the summit of this mountain is, but, you know, I can see, a, I can see the next ridge and I can't wait to get to it. And I suppose the next mountain for you, I suppose, is, is, is digitization, I suppose, of energy. But again, looking back over the career and over, I suppose, every peak that you've got to, you know, what would be the one lesson that you'd want to have learned from day one to help you get to those peaks quicker? Yeah, look, it's, I spent a brief amount of time uh, visiting the gym quite a lot. And the interesting thing I found on the treadmill was the, fast, the, the best way of getting faster on the treadmill was to go faster, right? <laughs> it's, there was no secret. Really? It's just, if you want to run faster, run faster. And I think it's the same in business. You know, if you want to move faster, move faster. Exactly. Right? You make the decision, right? And you absolutely force the pace. And if you hit it, do it again. Interesting, really. And I think Elon Musk says something similar in terms of it can take you a year to do something, but if you want to do it in six months, you can do it in six months. And it's better to try first and apologize later. Now, again, Octopus, I genuinely love it when we interview people on the podcast who we are also uh, working with. We've had Mama Foods, as I've said, who we love. We've obviously had Octopus Energy, who my mum is a client of and I'm a client of. Now, if we obviously wanted the rest of our company to become clients of Octopus, where can we go to find you? Uh, well, octopus.energy uh, on the web. And um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's G underscore underscore J. Uh, there's a mistake. Uh, I, should, uh, I thought it was being clever. It's really hard, but G double underscore J. And actually, that's kind of where you'll find our most interesting content, because I do like to talk very candidly mm-hmm. about what's going on in the energy transition for net zero, uh, because I think it's one of the best ways of forcing the debate rather than just kind of nodding along with received wisdom. I love it. And thank you ever so much for, for jumping on. I appreciate you're a busy man. Oh, goodness. I mean, look. I said earlier, I don't have that many back-to-back meetings because being able to do things like this and help drive change, drive the discourse is so important. So thank you for giving me the chance. They're truly inspirational. Greg, thank you ever so much. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Coming up next week, 
I say to my husband, if the house is burning down, I'm getting the dog. It's every man for himself after that. <laughs> I was so used to sitting in an office for 14, 15 hours a day on my butt. And what used to come past in the afternoon to give you a pickup was, you know, the Harry Bows. Was it really? I thought it was in the toilets. <laughs> There was a lot of that. Well, I've heard that. I don't know that I've heard that through friends of friends of friends. I, all I can say is allegedly that happens quite a lot, but I think I saw a lot of people with some issues in the loop. Yeah. <laughs> See you next week, 8am on all podcast platforms. Simply subscribe or ask your smart speaker to play Success is in the Mind podcast. This is a Pinpoint Media podcast presented by me, Oliver Bruce, produced by Dan Miller and Fergus Bruce, edited and designed by Harry Fox and Victoria Bramwell, filmed by Madeline Harris, marketed by Ellie Hanwell and Rachel Buchanan-Hughes and managed by Bethan Wyatt and Annabelle Lawton-Smith. Quite a team. Thanks, guys. If you know anyone you think we should interview, if you want to tell your story or have your say, please reach out to me directly via podcast at pinpoint-media.co.uk. Remember, there's never a good time to start a business, but in business, you should always have a good time. Cheers, guys.